we're going to continue in Acts chapter 2 today. And um, just to remind you that uh, there is a, I send out an email every week, and I think some of you get it, but just to, in case there's any changes, which, you know, what, when we meet on Sunday, if we go anywhere else or if anything else is going on, um, I send that out. So if you can, go to the, you can go to the website and sign up for that at resurrectionbethesda.org. Uh, but we're continuing Acts today, and as you know, the study is The Church on Earth, and the title of today's message in Acts 2.25 is called The Promise. The Promise. Um, I don't know if you've made any promises lately or heard any promises, but I think there's a lot of promises that go around in our day and age, you know, and uh, they say as a parent, never to promise your kids something and not follow through on it. Uh, I'm sure that they would remember it, you know, if you promise to take them to Disney World, when they're four and five and you never do, I'm sure for the rest of their life, they'll be saying, my dad promised me. <laughs> so as a parent, I need to be very careful about the promises I make. But God has given us a book full of promises, and I think sometimes maybe we don't believe them, or maybe others don't believe them. Maybe we're the only ones who do believe them, but this whole book is a, is a promise to us that he loves us and that he is who he says he is, and uh, his word is always true in that sense, in any sense, really. But again, Acts, it's uh, the Acts of the Apostles and the, the believers in this time. Really, we're going to look at Peter and Paul uh, in this book. It was AD 63, and it was written by Luke. But last week, we looked at prophecy. We looked at tongues, and we looked at the truth, and how God gave these guys different languages to speak at this time that others might not be impressed by their ability to speak other languages from uh, God's ability, but that they might hear the words of God. They might hear the message of God, that God loves them, that God has done wonderful works, as we saw in the Old Testament. And from there, God uses that to reach these people through uh, the message of Peter that we began to look at and we're looking at here continually, and what their response to that is. That God wants them to understand the words that are coming out of Peter's mouth. God wants them to understand the words that he is saying in the Bible. You know, a lot of people have seen the Bible or read the Bible, but they don't understand what it says. And God wants us to understand what the Bible says. And if we're not understanding what we're reading, maybe we need to get a, a translation in our own language or in something that's easier to read. But more than that, God wants, to know, wants us to know what the, his word truly means. You know, it's not meant to be kept by the priests. It's not meant to be in Latin. It's meant to be understandable because God wants us to know him. And that's how we know him is through the word. And that's the truth. And that's the message of the whole Bible is truth, is that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God and that he loves us. But um, the message is that Jesus is God. They crucified him, but God raised him. And, you know, Romans 10, 8 through 11 says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. And we looked at this verse last week, too. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved. Why? Verse continues, For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That the qualification for this whole thing is that the Bible has said that if you believe on Jesus, you will not be put to shame. Is that the word itself is saying, this is the truth, this is who the truth is, and this is the results of believing the truth, that you'll be saved. And the word qualifies itself. And this week we're going to look at David the promise and repentance. And Peter's going to share some stuff that David wrote down. We're going to look at that and we're going to see that God really has promised this to everybody.
Let's go on and let's read the first few verses. Uh, Verse 25 in Acts chapter 2. For David says concerning him, or concerning the Messiah, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and the tomb, his tomb, is with us to this day. You know, verse 25 says, For David says, for David says, well, who is David? We probably know who David is. I mean, my son Jacob, his middle name is David. He's named after this David, because David is one of my favorite guys in the Bible. But David was the son of Jesse. He had seven brothers. Um, maybe he had sisters. We don't know. They didn't always write down uh, sisters and everything in the Bible. It's usually sons who carried the name on, so that's who they wrote down. But he had seven brothers, and he was the youngest of them. So picture a big, large family. I don't know if you know anyone with a large family. Maybe you come from a large family. Uh, but he was the youngest of them. And uh, he was ruddy. Maybe he was kind of looked a little different. He maybe had a little bit of red hair going on. Apparently he was good-looking when he was older. But he didn't look the part of the one to be anointed king at this time. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 14, Saul had been king, had anointed king, basically back up a little bit. Israel wanted a king like all the other nations around them, even though they had God and they didn't want God anymore. So God gave into their wishes and gave them a king, King Saul. And Saul looked very much the part. He was taller than a lot of people. He was a strong guy. He was kind of flaky here and there in the beginning and throughout his reign, but he looked the part. But Saul had begun to do things that God had told him not to do. He began to, to go his own way. He began to trust in other things. And he really began to go completely against God and really try and rationalize it. So God said to Samuel, the prophet of the time, it's time to go anoint another, another guy king, Saul. I'm done with Saul. And if you read that area in 1 Samuel, you'll see that same thing happens. David is anointed king. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit says, leave Saul. And I think that that's very interesting. This anointing was passed on to David. But when Samuel came to look for him, he goes down the line of all of uh, Jesse's sons, David's brothers, and he goes, this must be him. He looks like the king. He's the oldest. He's buff. You know, he's got uh, a a good life in front of him. People listen to him and respect him as the oldest. And God goes, nope. Next down the line, this guy must be it. God says, nope. All right, well, this guy's got to be it. Nope. This guy, this guy, this guy, all the way down the line. And Samuel finally goes, Jesse goes, do you have any more sons? Is there anybody else that's should be here. That's not here. And Jesse goes, well, you know, we, David is the youngest and he's out with the sheep right now. And, you know, I, I don't really know, you know, David's not really one to be king and goes, Samuel, bring him here. And when he brings him here, God goes, this is the one, this is the one. And David would become uh, Israel's second king after Saul uh, says that he was also a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a very smart guy. He ended up being Solomon's dad. You know, as we know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He had Uriah killed after all this. Um, But he repented. You know, David repented. David screwed up big, but David did a lot of good things for God in a sense because his heart was for God. When When he messed up, he confessed it. And he realized, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. 
But um, he set up the kingdom for a powerful reign for his son. You know, he was a musician, a poet, and he even gave prophetic words. You know, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And if we read them, as we're going to see here, even uh, Peter quoted it, that it was prophetic. You know, God promised David that the Messiah would come, and David believed it. David believed that. And David wanted to build God a temple. He goes, he looks out one day and he sees God in the tabernacle in a tent, and it's been a tent and it's been around for a while, and maybe it's got patches on it, I don't know. But David's dwelling in this large, nice palace, and he goes, I want to build God a house. And the prophet goes to him and says, Yeah, that's a good idea. And then God says, No. And he comes back to him and he tells David that, Hey, um, you don't have to build me a house. You know, what am I going to, God going to dwell in a house made with human hands? He says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to put your lineage as the lineage that Jesus would, would come out of, that you're the one that the Messiah is going to come out of, your sons down the road many years, but he would come out of it, and that Jesus would sit on David's throne forever. I mean, that's crazy. Imagine God says that to you, that you're going to be president one day, and your son one day is going to be Jesus, and that he's going to rule and reign forever, that God's using you to set this all up. But I think part of that is why, because David knew God's heart. And David knew that unlike Saul, you know, to get right with God, you just simply listen to him. You just simply listen to God and obey what God says. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You know, David understood that. What does God want from us? Does he want a sacrifice like Saul made? I did all this wrong, so let me, you know, go make up for it, God, in a way that God tended to prescribe. But no, David knew that the way to get right with God was simply just allow yourself to be broken. Allow yourself to come to him and say, God, I'm sinful. I need you. Please forgive me. And that's all God wants because that's the only way God can have a relationship with us. Because God can't dwell in our temple if we won't let him. If we don't let him. God doesn't care about sacrifices that we make. God doesn't care about, um, you know, I was talking about somebody who worked this week about how he's been going to a, a different church that's very like, sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up, because that's where his wife wants to go. And he's not really sure about it. I'm like, he's like, I feel like it's work. I feel like when I go there, it's work. And I'm like, that's exactly what it is. And, and God does not want you to work to have a relationship with him. I said, yeah, sometimes you have to force yourself to get up to spend time with God. But God doesn't want you to work. He just wants you to just to come, just to come. You know, we see here that Peter quotes David's psalm, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Uh, and it's right there. And, and it says, basically, the rest of resurrection. You know, that we would see Jesus' face. And when we see his face, that we would not be shaken. And because we're not shaken, his heart rejoiced. His heart rejoiced. You ever have a time when your heart is just, oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. And I find it's probably been a while since I've deeply rejoiced. I've gone through a lot of hard things in the past year or so. But I know that I can rejoice in God. You know, it's not just, I'm going to Disneyland this weekend. Or, <laughs> you know, it's that we can really rejoice in hard times because we've seen God and we're not going to be shaken. And so we have a joy that's different. It says that his tongue was glad. His tongue was glad. You know, I don't know how glad your tongue is or my tongue is, especially Monday morning driving to work or going to work. <laughs> but songs, words of grace, tell of good things. You know, what comes out of our mouth? Is there this joy that comes out of our mouth? Are our tongues glad? And I have to say, well, if they're not, maybe our heart's not rejoicing. And if our heart's not rejoicing, probably because we're shaken over something. And if we're shaken over something, it's probably because we haven't seen God's face in the whole ordeal. So that's the key. We need to get back to seeing his face. But it says that his flesh will rest in hope. 
that, we, that there's no need to strive, that our bodies, our flesh, when we see God, when we spend time with God, ah, we can relax. We can go, yeah, I have no idea how this is going to get paid or how this is going to get done or how this is going to get fixed or what is going to happen in my life, but I don't need to try and work and make it all together. I mean, yeah, maybe I need to go do something, but really I don't need to, to stress out about it anymore. I can rest in God. But he also says that his soul goes to heaven and not hell, that there's this guarantee in seeing God knowing that, ah, I'm going to heaven. No matter what happens because of Jesus, I'm going to heaven. And also that the Messiah will be resurrected, that he will not rot in the grave, that physically Jesus would go to heaven, that he wouldn't die. I mean, forever. He died and he rose again, but he wouldn't stay dead. And that this is the way of life and that there's joy in God's presence. And this is what this psalm here is saying here. I have to say that things wouldn't be like this if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. If God never rose Jesus from the grave, he never said he would, and he never actually did, what hope would we have? I mean, really, how happy could we be? We could just go out and do whatever we wanted and say, well, maybe God will save me. The one who is supposed to save me is still in the grave, and God didn't save him. What hope would we have? Why, why on earth would we believe any of this? If Jesus was still dead, you know, I look around and see people who worship people who are dead or worship people who are still living and haven't died and come back from the grave. And I go, what's the point? Like, I think it's really just to make yourself feel good, to close up some, you know, responsibility, try and deal with, uh, you know, your sin in a different way, in a way outside God's way, sort of like Saul was doing. But really, if we know that Jesus is alive and our hope is that he's alive in heaven and we're going to be in heaven with him one day, it changes our whole perspective. See these guys getting beheaded by ISIS and other things. And you go, if I didn't believe in Jesus and I knew Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, I would say, okay, let me become a Muslim so you don't cut my head off. Let me do what is most expedient. But when we know that Jesus is alive and our hope is not in this life, man, I hope I can, I hope I stick with it. (laughs) I hope so. But what could we hope in then? What joy or guarantee would we have if Jesus wasn't alive? You know, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And wow, Paul can speak. <laughs> he puts a lot into a couple sentences. But really here is that when we believe in Jesus, when we come to faith in him, what's the guarantee that we really believe? The Holy Spirit. What's the guarantee that we're going to heaven? The Holy Spirit. When we know that God is in our life, whether we look at our lives and we go, man, I'm still pretty messed up or whatever the case may be, but you know that you're different. You know that God is in you. You know, maybe you doubt it. You know, I remember getting saved and about eight, nine months later, I went through a season of doubt. And I think that that's normal. That's healthy. That's part of growing and going, beginning to rationalize things and practically put them into practice. You know, what what I know what the Bible says, but I know how I feel and what reality is. How do these two things uh, align and when you get through that doubt it's it's much stronger but the, really the guarantee is that God is in you God is in you the Holy Spirit is in you and that's the guarantee because if God wasn't bringing you to heaven why would the Holy Spirit be in you why would God want anything to do with us if he was just gonna let us go one day 
I wouldn't, you know, he's, he's fully invested in us. But verse 29 says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You know, these verses obviously do not speak of David. You know, David's dead. David was buried. There was apparently a tomb with them to that day that they could go see and say, hey, this is where King David is buried. But we can't do the same thing with Jesus. I mean, maybe there's, you know, they have all these tombs over in the Middle East, and there's probably one you could go visit, and they would say, this is where Jesus was buried, and it might actually be the one, but his bones aren't in there. His body's not in there. Uh, the Catholic Church trotted out uh, a while ago this vial of blood of one of their saints, and it was, you know, they all kind of worshipped it and had a special service about it, but they don't have that for Jesus. Even if they did, he's still not his body. Still not his body. He's not here. He's not here. You know, it's not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. And that's one of the ways we can know that this is speaking about the Messiah, is that this isn't David saying, God's not going to leave me in hell. In a sense, he's not, because we're all going to go to heaven one day. But David's body saw corruption, but the Messiah's didn't. The Messiah's didn't. And we'll go on. 30 through 32 says, Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, for which we are all witnesses. You know, Peter here expounds on the truth. He expounds on the truth that Jesus is alive. David was a prophet. You know, like we talked about last week, that prophecy builds up the body. It builds up believers, those around us. You know, when God gives us a word of prophecy or speaks through us or we teach the Bible or share the Bible with somebody and that word goes forth, it's for their benefit. It's to build them up, to encourage them. I mean, I hope that when we get together and we get the Bible study together, that we are built up by it, that we're not broken down by it, that we're drawn together by it. But tongues builds us up personally. If, if God gives you the gift of tongues, and you speak in tongues, whether it's a heavenly language or an earthly language, and it's done in private or in the way that uh, Corinthians talks about in a certain setting, that it builds yourself up. You know, I believe that God has given me the gift of tongues. Well, do I practice it out in public? No, but in certain times in prayer or in worship or by myself, I'll speak in tongues to the Lord, and I feel like God gives me some understanding of what I'm saying, but it's always praise to God. And it builds myself up. You know, in my own personal time with the Lord. It's not for me to come out here and say, yeah, look at this. I speak in tongues. I say that and I go, I'm saying it to show you that it's really not that important. It's not that important for me, you know, to do it around you guys because it has nothing to do with you guys between me and the Lord. But prophecy is different. Prophecy is for others. And, and God gave David, the king, prophecy. You know, this right here, this is a psalm. Maybe it was a song. Maybe they sang it in temple. I don't know. Maybe he strung his guitar and he sang it. Um, where he was, but he's speaking of the truth. This is God's word. It's prophecy. It's, it's speaking of Jesus to come. You know, David wasn't allowed to do the priestly things. God put a, a distinct break between the kings and the priests, where the Levites, who didn't have any earthly inheritance or land, they were given the, the inheritance of taking care of the things of God in the temple. But the king was to take care of the nation and to fight the battles and to rule over the people and make those, uh, like, political decisions, but they weren't to mix. And that's where Saul kind of got in trouble. 
And yet we see before David was kind of uh, king, when he was on the run, when he was still anointed to be king, but he wasn't actually in office yet, Saul was still in office. Uh, David's running around with his guys, and they're on the run, and what do they do? They're hungry, and they go, and they get the showbread. You know, you go into the temple, and there's the, 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 the tabernacle, and there's the table with the showbread, and uh, there's the lampstands, and all these other things that were representative of heaven and of the Messiah to come. But what does he do? He eats the bread off the table because they're hungry. The priest gives him the bread. Was he allowed to do that by the law? No, absolutely not. But did, was God mad at him for it? No. I mean, we even see Jesus with the disciples, and they're walking through a field, and there's some weed, and they're kind of hungry, and there's this provision in the law for poor people to be able to walk through fields and, and glean out of the fields, it's called, where you go through and you harvest your grapes or you harvest your wheat, but you leave a little bit left and some by the road, and as poor people come through, they come and they, they pick and they eat or they fill their baskets so that everyone is kind of taken care of, and God made provision for that. So as the disciples and Jesus are walking through this field, they begin to, to pluck little pieces of weed and rub it in their hands, per se, and eat it. And then all the religious people get mad and say, what are you guys doing? You're doing work on a Sunday. You're harvesting and doing all this stuff. And Jesus goes, guys, don't you remember David? Don't you remember how he ate the showbread? That is it God who's really cared about the law? I mean, yeah, the law is true, and the law is right, and the law you know, really shows us that we're sinful. But at the end of it, God says, bread on a table and my servant was hungry and his people were hungry my anointed one was hungry I'm really more concerned about meeting their needs than them trying to conform to something for me now that doesn't rationalize sin and that's not what that is but it's really showing that the heart of God is really it's about love it's about love and law is supposed to, to show us the outlines of love but David's life showed God to those around him you know like the showbread it's sh- people saw God in that moment. They were a lead uh, ally to David. You know, he knew the meaning of God's word because he knew God's heart. You know, David writes all these songs and they reveal a big portion of God's heart because David's heart was impacted by God's heart. They still live in the time of the law. There was still the sacrificial system. But David understood something that other people didn't, that God loved him, that God was willing to forgive him. And that God was someone to be reverenced and obeyed. He said, even when God gave him the kingdom, he's like, God, like, who am I that you would do this for? Who am I would do this for? And I think that, you know, when we're given things in life, whether it's money or friends or power or position, how we really react to that really is a revelation of our heart or how we react when we're not given those things that we think we want. You know, David was unwilling to take the kingdom from Saul and yet God gave it to him. He said, nope, I'm not, I even feel bad for cutting off the edge of his robe and even coming against the Lord's anointed. Well, wait a minute, who's really the Lord's anointed? David was anointed, but Saul was still in the office and he still had the power and the people looked at him as the king. David knew God's heart and, and, and it revealed to him. When God gave him these powers, it really revealed who David really was. And I think when we begin to, to be given those things or not given those things and we react, it's really a revelation of, of, of what's going on in our heart and who we are. But true prophecy like that will expose God's heart. It will expose God's heart. When we read the Bible, it's meant to expose God's heart. It's not meant to be a brick wall of laws and things we don't understand to keep us from God. Instead, it's really meant to be like pixels on a screen. Every little dot, when you put it together, you know, you look real close, it's a red dot. When you pull away, it's like red, green, blue, all these other things. But the further back you get and you say, wow, I see a picture. I see a face now. I can go watch a movie now with all these pixels that are changing colors. And that's the same way with God's word. Real close, maybe I don't really see it so much. Let me read a little bit more. And you read a little bit more, and then you pull back and you say, wow, 
This really is a picture of God. This really is what God looks like. I haven't seen his face, but I know what he looks like. You know, Luke 6, 43 through 45, Jesus says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. Pretty obvious. You know, you want to get an orange, you go to an orange tree. You want to get an apple, you go to an apple tree. Um, For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Jesus saying it's very obvious to know if someone is good or bad, and not that anyone is truly good, but really we can see what's in someone's heart by what they say. Um, someone claims to know Jesus, but what comes out of their mouth all the time? Anything but. Someone claims to not know Jesus, but out of their mouth all the time comes what? You know, Peter tried to deny the Lord, but his accent gave him away. So he was from Galilee. But really, you know, a good way to get a gauge of where our heart is is hearing what comes out of our mouth. Are we bitter all the time? Are we backbiting? Or are we blessing? Are we speaking gracious words, even if they're hard words to other people? Are we, are we doing it lovingly or not? Or are we all the time. And I think that that's another good heart check to go, man, all right, what, is, what do my words look like? And even if they are nice words coming out of our mouth, maybe they're not curses, maybe they're quote-unquote good words, well, what are those words framing? Are they revealing a motive in us or not? And that's the same way with God. You know, God's heart is good. God's heart is the only heart that is truly good. And God wants us to know his heart. And so if the words reveal our hearts and we're made in the image of God, how much more will God's words reveal his heart? He's not going to say something that's not true. He's going to say what comes out of his heart. And what comes out of his heart? Messages of love for us. That Yeah, there's right and there's wrong and there's sin and there's judgment and all these other things that are hard topics to deal with sometimes. But through it all, we see that God loves us. That he doesn't want us to deal with the, the circumstance. He doesn't want us to deal with the consequences, excuse me, of sin. You know, his heart is for us. It's not against us, and David knew that. I think it's important that we understand who the one is penning these things because David's life, a lot of, like a lot of these guys in the Bible, in some ways is a picture of Jesus' life. Was Jesus one who people would look on and think was the Messiah? No. You know, he didn't do the things that they thought. They thought it would be a political revolution, and it wasn't. It was a spiritual one. They said that even the Bible says that to look on him, you wouldn't even really necessarily be impressed. You might not even think he's kind of ugly. Like, <laughs> but this is God. This is God. He didn't come in looking all beautiful and Fabio-ish, you know. And that's the same thing. That's the same thing with David. But because he knew these things, he could prophesy in confidence about what God would do with the Messiah. You know, it says that David knew what God's word was. And David knew what God's word was. And because of that, he had confidence when he wrote down these Psalms. He wasn't necessarily writing them down. Maybe he didn't understand all the details of how it would all play out. But when he's writing down these Psalms, he believed them. He wasn't just writing them to get a paycheck, right? Four Psalms a day, David, and you know, we'll cut you a check. He believed these things. These were overflow of his heart because his heart truly believed God. And when, because his heart truly believed God, it allowed God to speak through him and, and use him uh, to the fact that we're still reading these things these day, today. I mean, that's crazy. Imagine your devotional time or your um, journal as you're writing to God in your journal, God speaks through you and prophesies about Jesus coming and he puts it in the Bible. Because that's really what it is. This is David's prayer journal. It's David's song journal to him. 
you know, I'm not a musician, but you know, I've, I have some friends who are musicians and they're always like writing down lyrics and things like that. And imagine that, that, that their lyrics would be the Psalms and the Bible for thousands of years to give us a picture of who God was and to comfort us. But you know, along those lines, prophecy just happens. Again, like we talked about, you can't work up the gifts of tongues. You can't blah, 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 and eventually come out with God saying, like there's that saying where you put a thousand monkeys on typewriters and eventually you'll get Shakespeare. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Have you seen one monkey on a typewriter? But really, it's the same thing. We can't just blah, make a thousand sounds come to our mouth and eventually we'll get words of God. And same thing with prophecy. We can't sit there and take a class. I mean, yeah, we can learn what the Bible says, and it's good to know what the Bible says, and God can use that. But it's just going to happen because we love God, and it's a gift, and a gift is naturally going to happen. You know, if I love my wife, I'm naturally going to get her a gift from time to time. Uh, it's probably not going to be very expensive, but I'm going to get her a gift from time to time. And the same thing with her for me or for everyone is natural. You know, if she asks me for something, and I go get it for her, and I bring home the groceries per se. I go, here's a gift, honey. She goes, that's not a gift. <laughs> that's groceries. In the same way, if, if God is giving us prophecy or tongues or teaching or other things, it's because he's gifted them to us. It's not something that we can work up and, and manifest on our own just because we, we know something or we think we do. But there's so many, you know, there's a result of this prophecy, and that's conviction. And there's so many times that this ha has happened in my life and does happen where I'm at church and... Uh, someone is sharing, whether it's the pastor or the worship leader, or just, just maybe someone's even just sharing their testimony. And I get to begin to get convicted over something. I begin to go, oh, get a little antsy in my seat, or I just know that God is speaking to me specifically about an issue that I'm going through. And the person has no idea what I'm going through per se. The person may or may not know me, but God does. And that's the way it works. The Holy Spirit begins to take these words that are really his, and it begins to prick our hearts with it. We'll see what happens to these guys. Or my friends have said something. Maybe a friend has shared something with me. Or even I've been at a point where I was watching a movie a long time ago. And this is the plot line in the movie God used to convict me about something. And it was a kid's movie. It was like sharks or something. I forget what it was. Don't go watch it and try and figure out what, what I was convicted over. But, but really, I was like, oh, I had to like leave the room and <laughs> go into my room. It was like rough. But God does that. Or dreams. Like, I believe God gave Ashley a dream the other night that really confirmed something that God was warning me about and telling me I had to deal with you know, as a situation that was going on. And, and I'm not one to get into all oh, dreams and, you know, be crazy about it. But I think sometimes we need to pay attention to these things because God's going to give them to us. But I think it's funny the way this prophecy works is that even the high priest condemning the Lord prophesied. If you guys remember John 11, 49 through 53, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You know, this is when they were arguing about Jesus and what to do with him. He says, do you not consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the whole people and not that the whole nation should perish? Now this he did not say in his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for that nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. That these guys who thought they knew God, who were very religious, because this guy was an authority, God allowed him to prophesy that year because that's something that the high priest did. There would be a prophecy that came out. And I bet you this guy had no idea he was prophesying at this time. I bet you he just thought he was scheming away to kill Jesus. Hey, you guys, come on. Don't you know that it's better if we just get rid of him than we do these other things? And, and this is what God used. So God can use whatever he wants to prophesy. But I think it's interesting that, you know, it, it really comes out of the overflow of our hearts sometimes.
But he says that he's going to raise up the Christ to sit on David's throne. You know, David knew that Jesus would have to be alive to reign as king. I mean, think about it. When a king is dead, someone else is going to take his throne. If the king dies or if the president were to die today, someone else is going to take his throne. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be you. It's going to be the vice president. If the vice president dies, it's going to be the speaker of the house. The speaker of the house dies, it's going to be the president pro tempore, the Senate, the whole cabinet. There's this whole list of the next guy to take over and take over. It's called the line of succession. And David understood that about Jesus. He understood that I'm going to die one day. If the Messiah doesn't come, my son is going to take over the throne. If the Messiah doesn't come, his son is going to take over the throne and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And he understood that. But he had to understand also that Jesus would not die again. Jesus would live forever. Because if Jesus died, that means someone else could take over the throne. But we know that the throne of David is eternal and the throne of Jesus is eternal. And that means that Jesus is going to be sitting on it forever alive. Because you can't take a throne from a live king, at least not easily. You know, you have to go to major war with him. And that's what the enemy is trying to do. And that's what we see the world really coming into place right now is trying to take the throne away from Jesus. And, and we know how that ends up. You know, it's just not going to happen. But David wanted to build God a temporal home. But God put David on a lineage to an eternal throne. You know, David wanted to do something big for God in his eyes, but it would be very little in eternity. And God said, don't worry about it, David. I want to do something big for you. And verse 31 says that he foreseeing this, he foresaw it. Again, this is prophecy. His eyes were open because he believed God. And I think a lot of times in our lives, we miss out on what God is doing. Maybe because we don't believe what God has said to us in the past. We miss out on something that's happening right in front of us because we haven't necessarily put to heart the things that God has said to us before. You know, he spoke concerning the resurrection. We take that for granted a lot right now, the resurrection, I think, because we've heard it so often. Yeah, Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected. Resurrection Sunday, Easter, for 2,000 years. We've heard it, but it's not a small thing. How many people do you know that have come back from the dead? Maybe they were resuscitated. I don't know, but it's not real resurrection. You know, who was really resurrected before Jesus? Lazarus, but he died again. A little girl who was healed, but I'm sure she died again. And they were both done by Jesus. There was the dry bones of Ezekiel, but they all died again. And even then, God did it. God is the only one who can bring people back to life because he's the one who gave us life in the first place. He's the only one. I mean, Google right now is trying to figure out how to transfer your consciousness into artificial intelligence. I mean, look it up. This is what they're trying to do. They want people to live forever. And I don't know if I'd want to live that way. But David knew that Jesus was the Messiah and that he wasn't simply a scapegoat. You know, in the sacrificial times, they'd have a, a goat that they'd put the sin onto and they'd have to send out of the camp. They'd have other animals that they would kill, all these symbolic things about Jesus. But David knew that that was not just the Messiah's thing, just to come and die for our sins and that would be it. And there would be a, a sacrifice and be over with. David knew that this sacrifice was going to be greater. God showed him that the sacrifice was going to be a death sacrifice, but that the real point of the sacrificial system was to show that these animals can't really do it for you. These animals will never come back to life. These animals will never give you new life. But God will give you new life. That God can take away your sin and not only take it away, but giving you life through the resurrection. And David knew that and he proclaimed that, that this system was greater than the law. You know, John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
in Romans 8, 1 through 6 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law cannot do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That There's two laws. There's the, the sinful law that our, my body wants to obey, and there's the spiritual law that my spirit wants to obey. And I can't fulfill them. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life in peace, that through Jesus, we can now have a spiritual life. And our spiritual life is not just sacrificing some animal at the temple on the Sabbath. It's a life that says, here's my sin, God. Now I can walk free from it. Now I don't have to obey my flesh. Now I don't have to give in to those sinful desires, but now I have the freedom to not only not give in to them, but not even have the desire for them anymore and to be totally free from them, that I can live a spiritual life in Jesus. You know, and, and not just as the world thinks a spiritual life is, which is doing some ritual or some activity that makes them spiritual. And that's, that's not it. But they were worshiping the law. These people that they were speaking to, they worshiped the law. They were very devout to the law. They tried to keep the law. They tried to do the right thing in their own strength. But we know that the law brings death. But Jesus brings life and the way of life. You know, the law says to us, obey me or die. Follow these Ten Commandments, or you're going to be destroyed. But Jesus says, follow me and live. Jesus says, I know you can't keep the Ten Commandments. In a sense, I never expected you to keep them. I want you to, to try and see that you never can, and that I'm the only one who can, and I'm the one who's going to give you freedom from these things. Um, you know, Not that the, the Ten Commandments are wrong. They're very good. But what it does is it shows us that our hearts are wicked. It says that God says that the right way to live is to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to not covet, to not steal, to worship God only, and all these other things. And we begin to notice in ourselves, wait, I can't live like that. I can't live like that, so there's got to be another way. You know, it says that he's not going to see corruption. And I looked up sort of the decaying process of the human body, and we won't get into too much, but... Uh, you know, the body begins to delay, to decay, and the first few days, not too much happens. I mean, if it's super hot out or something like that, yeah, it'll happen faster. But you have a few days, and they begin to do a process on your body to really take care of the body, and so you can have a, a funeral and all these other things when, the, when this happens. But the body stays the same for a couple days, and then it begins to rot, and then it begins to go through these other really gross things. But that didn't happen to Jesus. He died, he went into the grave, and then... He rose again, and I think they came to anoint him on that Sunday and you know, kind of cover up that stench a little bit, and, and he wasn't there. He, he didn't see decay in his body. He was uh, made new, and he came back to life. But like Lazarus, when he rose Lazarus from the dead, they're like, Lord, you know, it's been four days. <laughs> you, know, uh, you don't want to open that. <laughs> it's going to stink. That's what it says. But you know, Jesus didn't see corruption that way, and that's what this prophecy says, that his soul didn't stay in hell because he wasn't there for punishment and his body didn't see corruption because he wasn't meant to stay dead. But 32 says, This Jesus God raised up, no one else. 
God raised him up. There's no other Jesus. It wasn't a replacement. It wasn't another prophet in the line. That Jesus was the end prophet. You have all these prophets in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God. But it says that they were all witnesses. They were all witnesses of this Jesus. And that's the mark of a believer, is witnessing the resurrected Lord. You know, if you're a believer, that's the evidence. I believe that Jesus is risen from the grave, and then he's God, and then he died for my sins, and he is who he says he is. That's what makes you a believer. Just reading the Bible doesn't make you a believer. Coming here certainly doesn't make you a believer. But it's following the Lord and knowing that he's resurrected. That's the key, is that, that we know who he is. Like the thief who died on the cross, all three of them are dying on the cross right there. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Knowing that Jesus wasn't going to stay dead. Whether he understood the physical resurrection or just the, the afterlife idea of it, I don't know. But he knew that Jesus was not going to stay dead. That Jesus had power after death. And that's what being a Christian is, is knowing that God has power after death, over death. It's not just uh, whatever else it is. I mean, we look at some religions and we see Jesus still on the cross. They go to their church and he's still on the cross. They go, he's not even dead yet. <laughs> Who are you worshiping then? What is that system worship? And I'm not saying that there's people in that system that, that, that don't believe Jesus. I'm sure there's plenty in there who do believe Jesus. But I think the system as a whole, there's some, there's some major flaws there. You know, and I think the problem is that they haven't witnessed the resurrection. And if we haven't witnessed the resurrection, we're not going to be different. We're not going to be changed. David witnessed it in his faith, knew, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He knew that Jesus would be raised from the dead. But if we, if we don't know that, we haven't received new life and the guarantee of that new life, the Holy Spirit. I know God wants to do that here in Acts. He did it there, and he also wants to do it in our lives, that people need to see the resurrection. You know, if, if our lives aren't resurrected, so what? You know, who's going to want just the life that's patched together? I want a new life. I don't want my life just a little better. But let's go on. Uh, 33. Uh, uh, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know, God exalted Jesus, and that the proof that God exalted him is that he's resurrected and he ascended. It's not just that he came back to life, but that he went to heaven. That God said, Jesus, you did well, you did good, my faithful servant, my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm exalting you up to heaven. He physically did it, but he also spiritually did it. Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11 um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says that Jesus was obedient even unto death, and because Jesus was obedient, God exalted him. If in some facet of reality it was possible for Jesus to disobey God even though he's God and you know, we could get into a whole theological argument over these things. But if somehow he wasn't, God wouldn't have exalted him. He wouldn't have been the Messiah. And it says that David didn't ascend, but he spoke to the one who would. Jesus. David died and was buried. David wasn't resurrected yet. He, you know, at the day when we all go to heaven, we all will be. But, you know, just as Jesus ascended, all believers are going to ascend and put on incorruption one day. That's the promise. That's the hope. Jesus is alive. Jesus has a new body. And he's promised us the same exact thing. You know, First Thessalonians, there's a study that I did up at Calvary before I came down here in New York. It's available online if you're interested. But a lot of it is about that, the end times, the rapture. 
getting a new body. And I think 34 and 35 is very profound. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. You know, David prophesied and understood something that in a sense is a part of the mystery of God, the Trinity. He said, the Lord said to my Lord. You know, God said to the one who's my master, Jesus. This is something that he saw very early. You know, Elohim, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. That This word one that they use in the Old Testament, as we've probably heard before, is not just a singular one like we think of it in English. It's a plural one, almost like you and your wife or you and your husband are one, but there's two people. You know, Jesus is fully God and yet has submission to the Father, who in turn is represented by people to the Son, who is represented to us by the Spirit, who directs us to him and into a relationship with him because he loves us. You know, and that there's a, there's a set time for all this to take place. It says, till I make your enemies your footstool. Yeah, Jesus crushed the enemy's head on the cross, as it says in Genesis. He fulfilled that. But the world is still going crazy. Jesus hasn't come back yet. He hasn't put his feet up on the earth to rule and reign yet, but he will soon. He will soon. Let's go on and, and read the uh, next few verses, and we'll close out here in a little bit. Uh, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It's nice that the Bible says here that Peter says even that Israel can know assuredly that there's no doubt for them that reading this, reading the Old Testament, reading their scriptures, what they would call the Torah and the Pentateuch and all this in the Old Testament, the first five books and the law and the prophets, they can know assuredly that Jesus is who he says he was. They don't believe it, but if they really read it and really begin to believe what it says, they'll see that there's no other choice. Um, the odds of Jesus fulfilling even one in ten prophecies. It's been said that you could fill the state of Texas with, I think, silver dollars several feet high, mark one, chuck it out there, and the odds of him filling ten prophecies is randomly just first try picking up that one silver dollar that they marked. The odd, and there's 353. It goes up in numbers and all these examples filling the universe and filling uh, the solar system and things like that. Uh, for time, I won't get into it. But really, the odds of Jesus being who he says he are are outside reality. There's, there's, the number is so big, there's more particles in the universe. I mean, there's more, there's more particles in the universe than there are than this prophecy. I'm saying it wrong, but <laughs> you get the idea that there's no other choice than Jesus is who he says he is because of these prophecies. But the Holy Spirit, through Peter, clearly identifies who Jesus is. He clearly identifies him. He goes through the scripture. They share who he is. It isn't just this amazing message but it's this amazing message about the truth of jesus he then says what they did they crucified god but he doesn't stop there and i think we touched on it last week that what god did he raised him from the dead that yeah this is who jesus is yeah you guys killed him you sent him to the cross but that's not the end of the story god raised him from the dead and not only is he raised from the dead but he's exalted in heaven and that everyone should worship him because he is god and i think it's interesting that they heard this they heard it, and what happened? It says that they were cut to the heart. And that word cut means to pick or to pierce. 
Um, the pain the mind sharply, agitate it vehemently. Ever, ever try and think of a word or remember a name of a movie or something and you can't think of it and it bothers you for the rest of the day? And then like you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll remember it? It's kind of like that, but far worse, where it gets them to the heart. Like I said, they were convicted before. And Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, that God's word is able to cut down to the core issue very simply. Peter doesn't elaborate, doesn't give a fluffy message. He says, this is who God is, and you crucified him, and God raised him from the dead. And that cut them to the heart. And when God begins to speak to us, especially through a prophetic word or even just his Bible as prophecy as a whole, it cuts us to the heart. When we hear it and we hear it for what it is, man, there's only one thing we can do. And that's what they did. What do I do? Where do I go from here? I am sinful. Oh, man, I'm, I'm dirty even deep down. How? What, what happens? What do I do? You know, we can put up all sorts of defenses, but the truth just gets through. We can live all sorts of lies, but the truth cannot be suppressed. You see in the news, all these different people are living obviously lies, and it's very obvious that they're not who they're claiming to be or who the world is lifting them up to be. But you can't hide the truth. You can cover it up for a little while. And cover it up for a little while, but eventually it's going to come out. You know, Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You'll know a real friend when they tell you straight up, very simply, bro, this is wrong. You know, an enemy is going to go, oh, whatever, and get whatever they can out of you while they can. They don't care about your eternal destiny. Because the truth hurts. The truth hurts. And God wants us to be hurt from time to time, to time by the truth. Not because he's sadistic, but because he doesn't want us to experience the long-term hurt of a life lived in sin. And more than that, eternal hurt of a life apart from him. But again, you know, what is, what is an honest response to the truth? You know, what is the honest response? Is it, I'm sorry and oh, whatever, I'll never do it again, etc. No, but it's, what do I do? It's what do I do? It's not just sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Earthly sorrow produces death. But it's repentance. You know, a lot of people come to Christianity, but they've never stopped to ask God what to do. They simply added them onto their life like a merit badge, a justification for their action. But this is not the way Jesus talked about it. It's, oh, Lord, you're right. The Bible's right. What do I do now? And Peter tells them they must do two things. One is repent. And that word is just to change one's mind or directions or change course. You know, Jesus told them to throw their nets on the other side. And this is the first thing we need to do when coming to the moment of truth. When God's word begins to prick us and change us, whether it's the moment we come to Christ and salvation or whether it's we've been doing something or God's revealed something to us, we need to say, oh, what do I do, Lord? What I've been doing is totally wrong. I don't know what to do because I'm foolish and sinful. Tell me the right way to go and help me to do that. Nothing else matters. We can't make up for it. We can't say, God, I'll fix this and I'll go. No, it's, Lord, what do I do? And you can't fake that. Like I said, it's not just sorry. You know, being forgiven realizes the depths of our sin, at least to some degree, how it's affected us and others, how it's affected our relationship with God, and we begin to take responsibility for it. Nope, it wasn't my parents who raised me. It's my fault. I'm an adult. I made the decision. Nope, it wasn't because of this and that. It's I'm just sinful, and I take responsibility for it. And, I don't, and you don't want anything to do with it again. You don't want anything to do with it again. And I think that that's the problem that a lot of people have is, 
we rationalize our sin and we, we don't really repent of it. And so we struggle with it for years and then we begin to say that it's okay and that uh, God just may be this way. No, it's, it's sin and we need to repent of it. And I'd say if we're struggling with angling here, it's okay to struggle. We're going to struggle for the rest of our lives. It's not meant to be condemning. But I'd say if you're struggling with something for a long period of time and you can't stop struggling with it, maybe we really haven't repented of it. I mean, I remember the Lord saying to me one time, just stop. If I was crying about something, like, oh, I can't, I'm so, he goes, just stop. And that was it. I had to just stop. I had to just repent and do the other thing. But the next thing he tells them to do is to be baptized. And I think here, it's not that baptize, not that baptism is being saved, not that you're not going to go to heaven if you don't get baptized. I mean, if you, if you just came to the Lord and never been baptized or you've never really been baptized, get baptized. But the point is, is that it's sealing the deal. It's saying, I made this, it's a public proclamation of a private um, confession or of a private commitment that I've committed in my heart, I've committed it in my mouth, let me turn and go the other way and show the world that I'm going the other way. And that's what that is. It's not that it makes us saved, but that it's, it's sealing the deal. It's like a wedding ceremony. When I, my wife and I were engaged, if we never got married, how much did I really love her, you know? Was I really that committed until that day that we both said I do? That was that was the commitment. That was a public commitment. We're going to close here. I know we've gone a little long. It says, the promises to you, your children, and all who are far off. It says that this is a promise. This isn't a law for them to obey. Obey this and get saved. It's God is promising them that they can be saved. And it's not just to these people who are hearing. It's to their families, their friends, and to the whole world. You know, and that's for everybody. It's for everybody. And he says that the core here is that they need to repent and they can be saved because Revelation 9, 20 through 21 says, but the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons or idols or gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorcery, sexual immorality, and their thefts. You know that there's going to come a day when God's removed the church on the earth and he brings judgment on the earth to bring people to repentance because nothing else is working. People aren't re responding to God's kindness. And so judgment has to come. You know, like when I have to discipline my kids and I don't always like doing it, there comes a time when just saying something doesn't work and I have to put them in timeout. And there comes a time when timeout doesn't work and I have to, to step up the game a little bit. And that's the same thing with God. As we begin to not listen and not hear and not be pricked to the heart, he has to bring in harder judgments. And there comes a day in these last days when people won't even respond to the whole universe falling apart and falling on their head. When God's going to bring down mountains on them and they're just going to want to die instead of repenting and bowing to Jesus. And let that not be us. You know, God has given us plenty of time to repent and every opportunity to. And he always will. He's never going to turn his back on us. But when God begins to prick our hearts over something, let's respond to it. Let's turn to it. And uh, let's give others the opportunity to do so as well. Amen. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you that, God, it's true and it's powerful and living. And, God, the things you've been convicting us about lately in our personal lives, whether little things or big things, God, we give them to you now. And I pray, God, you'd help us to repent of them and to turn from them and to, God, uh, continue walking with you and not grow weary, Lord. And we pray your blessings on our day and everyone here and those who aren't. And, uh, uh, we love you, Lord, and uh, again, we just ask uh, that you bless uh, Laren on her trip and be with her family and uh, minister to them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.